We shall meet, but we shall miss him. There will be one vacant chair. We shall linger to caress him while we breathe our evening prayer. When a year ago we gathered, joy was. Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at about around 100 pages of the works of great American writers. And currently, we are looking at the Little Women trilogy by Louisa May Alcott. Alcott wrote these novels after the American Civil War um, on the request of her publisher. Uh, she did not have girls, uh, but she so she drew on her experiences as a young woman, but she reset them in the period that of of the Civil War, the time when her audience would have been would have been um would have been familiar. And many of the situations that the girls face are things that girls would have experienced during the Civil War, such as the loss of a parent, or at least the absence of a parent for a prolonged period of time, or uh, living with um, uh, just one parent. Now, one thing we talked about last time is how by the middle point of, of the first of these Little Women novels, Little Women, uh, you start to see the girls move away from these kind of all female relationships, right? Because when the novel opens, we only hear about the father through a letter, uh, on, on, like a Christmas letter from the front. And so it's the four girls and and the mother. Now, the first men who really enter the story are the Lawrence family, Mr. Lawrence and his grandson, Lori, or, or Teddy, Theodore. And he's just a friend initially. But over time, the girls start to, you know, interact with men much more and the oldest girl does this first obviously and this is Meg starts to build a relationship up with actually Lori's tutor Mr. Brooke um, but there's also other things that are foreshadowing not just that these girls are going to marry and kind of enter into adulthood uh, Beth one of the middle sisters gets ill and this illness is going to really burden her throughout the rest of the novel well, if you haven't read Little Women or you're just joining this podcast, I encourage you to go back and listen to the previous two episodes where I set up a lot of the themes that were established in in this early in the earlier part of the novels. Uh, now, Little Women is divided up into two parts. Each is about 250 pages. Um, so with my structure, I'm going to have to break up. This third episode is going to cover a little bit of part one of the novel and the beginning part of part two. So let's just jump in where I left off and again, go back and listen to the previous episodes if, if, you're, if you're just joining us because, you know, then I don't have to, well, then you'll know where we're at. Um, so we're starting in chapter 20. Uh, chapter 20 is called Confidential. So this chapter is mostly wrapping up issues from the previous chapters. Uh, so Mrs. Marsh comes back from, well, first she gets called to Washington to meet her husband who was wounded or, or fell ill in the front, I think. And then she's there taking care of him. 
And then Miss, Mrs. March gets this letter that Beth is sick. She fell down with scarlet fever, which she actually got from, from the neighbor girl who did die. So she's starting to recover. And she's recovering just as Mrs. March comes home. But she's still taking care of Beth and helping her fully recover from her illness, something she never really does throughout the novel. She's just kind of sickly from now on until she dies well into the second part of the novel. He also, she also checks up on Amy, who's, who's kind of living with Aunt Marsh, who's like the rich neighbor with this big house. And Joe was kind of reading to her and helping her out before that. And she has servants. But, you know, Amy is kind of, you know, interacting with uh, Aunt Marsh. And she's actually going to have a bigger role with Aunt Marsh in the second half of the novel as well. We also follow up on with Meg and her relationship with Mr. Brooke, which at this point is still still needs development. But it. It's a lot of rumor and innuendo and things. Everyone sort of thinks they're going to get together. And certainly something that Joe and Lori gossip a lot about. Joe doesn't want them to get together. And and Lori is kind of more pushing them to, to get together. Joe doesn't want to lose his sister. So she ends up being very jealous of Mr. Brooke. Doesn't want her sisters going away. And this is going to be something that is really part of Joe's growing up process. Because she's going to lose a sister to marriage. And she's going to lose another sister to a long years, years long study in Europe, and she's going to lose another one to death. And she herself ends up having to go away from her hometown and living in New York for a while. So this experience of loss for her is very acute and something she's going to have to get used to. And and she's still really hesitant to let go of any of her sisters at this point in the story. So she's very jealous of Mr. Brooke. Um, Now we learn how connected she feels to all her sisters, though. She was angry in a previous chapter about Beth dying. And she expressed this anger to Lori. And now she's angry that Meg will marry soon. And Meg's, of course, the oldest. Mrs. Marsh talks to Joe about her feelings and how she seems to be trying to micromanage her life and the life of her sisters. And her lesson is that partially you got to let Meg live her life, but also that, you know, this is a pretty good option for her. She says, Money is a good and useful thing, Joe, and I hope my daughters never feel the need for it too bitterly, nor be tempted by it too much. I should like to know that John was firmly established in some good business, which gave him a large income enough to keep free of death and make Meg comfortable. I'll just jump in here. He's a tutor at this point, so he doesn't really have this yet. Keep going. Uh... I'm ambitious for a splendid fortune, a fashionable position, or a great name for my girls. If rank and money come with love and virtue, also I should accept them gladly and enjoy the good fortune. But I know by experience how much genuine happiness can be had in a plain little house, where the daily bread is earned and some privations give sweetness to the few pleasures. I'm content to see Meg begin humbly, for, if I'm not mistaken, she will be rich in the possession of a good man's heart, and that is better than a fortune. End quote. And so... Uh, I think at one point she says, like, maybe he, you know, he can be with Lori because then she can kind of keep her friends and her family together. And and Mrs. Marsh tosses that idea away, too. So that that's kind of what this chapter does. It's just kind of wrapping up some of the threads that we've previously seen and, and kind of works us towards the end of, of part one of the novel. So chapter 21, Lori makes mischief and Joe makes peace. So in this chapter, we see a bit of how mature Lori is in terms of relationship. And this is actually something Marsh, Mrs. Marsh said right in the previous chapter that Lori's not ready for relationships yet. And, you know, you got to, you know, certainly Meg's too old for him or he's too immature for Meg. And this reinforces that idea. Meg gets a love letter that she thinks is from Mr. Brooke. It's actually from Lori kind of just being mischievous. 
When Meg replies, Brooke responds like, I never sent you any letter. What's going on? And he's confused. So why is Lori making this mischief? Joe learns later that he is feeling very confined in his house and he's increasingly thinking of running away. His mischief making is just his way of keeping interest in a world that's gone increasingly banal for him. So Joe decides to step in and help him deal with his grandfather. And the way she does this is by writing a letter. Now, in this chapter, letter writing is important in both cultivating and repairing relationships. Joe so shows some growth in this chapter as well. Like earlier, she was actually overtly excited to help Lori run away. She says, Lori, you got to run away. And, and when he's, he suggested, he said, Lord Joe says run away. Meg's the one who says, no, you got to stick with your family. And here she decides not to break the relationship and can instead encourage Lori to work on his relationship with his grandfather. Now, generational conflict is the deepest in this relationship between Lori and Mr. Lawrence. Now, this, we have this really good relationship between Mrs. Marsh and the girls. And it's not too conflicted. There's occasionally this kind of lesson giving and things like that, but there's very not a lot of conflict between them. They, they tend to be on the same side of things. And the relationship between Mr. March and the girls is very good too. Where we get a really conflicted relationship between an adult and a younger person is, is really Mr. Lawrence and Laurie. And now, of course, you have a two-generation gap in that case. And so Mr. Lawrence is much more old-fashioned. He would have been of the generation of the American Revolution, I guess. Although I don't know if we ever get his full background, if he was an immigrant or, or what. But this you really see this tension between this ambition to go out, which is what Laurie wants, and this idea that... Because, of course, Mr. Lawrence wants to protect his family, too. He's lost quite a lot. He's lost his son. He's lost a granddaughter. All right, next chapter, Pleasant Meadows, chapter 22. So it's Christmas time. So this is one year after the novel began. So the, all of part one of the novel is essentially a year in the life of the girls. Part two covers like a decade. So this time scale speeds up a lot in the second half of, of the novel. But so this gives it lets us know we're like a year into the story. The chapter is about reunion and disunion in the family. So on the one hand, you got Mr. Marsh coming home. He's going to be well and safe, recovered from his illness. And on the other hand, Joe realizes that Meg will soon be re leaving her family for her marriage, which everyone knows is coming to Mr. Brooke. Now, it's going to take a few years for it to actually happen, but it's it, everyone kind of knows that's where it's going to go. But despite this overhang in the marriage, this chapter is really a lot of pure joy. It's just the happiness of getting together around Christmas time. In fact, they even revisit something that happened in the first chapter, which is uh, talking about Pilgrim's progress. And just you get this feeling of, of how much joy there is with Mr. March, Mr. March coming back and the girls really enjoying another Christmas together. There never was such a Christmas as as they had that day the fat turkey was a sight to behold when hannah sent him up stuffed browned and decorated so was the plum pudding which quite melted in everyone's mouth likewise the jellies which in which amy reveled like a fly in a honey pot everything turned out well which was a mercy hannah said for my mind was flustered man and it's a merry sight mum and sorry i'll try it again hannah said for my mind was that flustered mum and it's the merry cycle i didn't roast the pudding and stuff the turkey with raisins let alone a bit of the cloth Mr. Lawrence and his grandson dined with them, and also Mr. Brooke, at whom Joe glowered darkly, and to Laurie's infinite amusement. Two easy chairs stood by side, side by side at the head of the table, in which sat Ben, Beth, and her father feasting and feasting modestly on chicken and little fruit. They drank healths, told stories, sung songs, reminisced, as the old folks say, and had a, thou, a thoroughly good time. 
A sleigh ride had been planned, but the girls would not leave their father, so the guests departed early as the twilight gathered and the happy family sat round the fire. So it's really nice and sweet. A nice, a nice Christmas celebration. So I don't know if the Puritans, I don't think the Puritans did much with Christmas. They weren't much for, for celebrating, but it's by the mid-19th century that Christmas starts to become a thing, right? And of course, Dickens had a role in that. Now, chapter 23, Aunt Marsh settles the question. So this chapter really resolves one hanging thread from the first part of the novel, and this was really the definitive conclusion of the relationship between, Meg's, uh, between Meg and Mr. Brooke. It's really Aunt, Aunt March who approaches the question the most directly, as the title, the title of the chapter suggests. She demands that Meg should marry a rich man, and she's rich, but she's also very, she's lonely because she doesn't really have any family left, and she's kind of in this big house. And just previously, Mrs. Marsh said, like, she'll be happier with a good relationship in a small house. And that tension comes to a head in this chapter where, she says, you should marry a rich man. This Mr. Brooke's no good for you. And Meg defends the dignity of Brooke. And Mr. Brooke overhears this. And the mutual love between the two is exposed really for everyone who, who's listening. And then they plan to marry in the future. Brooke is a bit too support, poor to support a family. Mostly, though, this is just another joyous chapter that shows the family together. But it does set the seeds for a new thing, at least for one of the March girls. From Joe's point of view, though, this is not a positive development. So that's the end of part one of Little Women. So it covers one year in the life of these girls from a loss and absence of a father to the restoration of the father. But then we really see these girls becoming women, which is, of course, growing up as a theme of the novel. Um, now, the one who makes the biggest development is Meg. All right, Meg. Now, other all the other girls make progress, too. Amy leaves her school and starts being educated at home. Beth gets her illness, which is going to really plague her for the rest of the novel. And Joe, you know, starts to work on her writing a little bit. So all these things are, are set up and they're going to be pursued in much more accelerated pace in the second half of, of the novel. So in part two, basically we see all the, all the girls become women. If you want to take maturation, it's a theme of the novel. They all become women by the end of the novel, but they do it in all different ways. Uh, Joe becoming a writer and eventually getting married. Meg gets married and becomes a mother. Beth faces death uh, with maturity. And Amy, you know, continues her education or show, or, uh, abroad and becomes a, an artist. Now, chapter one of part two is called Gossip. The title of this chapter comes from the narrator suggesting that we're going to get kind of one last window into the March girls before one of them becomes a woman. In fact, during the whole second half of the novel, all of them are going to become women, as I said. So in a way, we're getting kind of getting this last window into their childhood. And gossip is part of this childish, one of these childish things that sort of is implied gets left behind here. Um, but I really like how she starts it because she's... Alcott, I mean, Lucy May Alcott, is challenging some conventions about what to expect in, in a novel like this. And this is how it starts out. In order that we may start afresh and go to Meg's wedding with free minds, it will be well to begin with a little gossip about the marshes. And here let me premise that if any of the elders think there's too much lovering in the story, as I fear there may, I'm not afraid the young folks will make that objection. I can only say that Mrs. Marsh, 
What can you expect when I have four gay girls in the house and a dashing young neighbor over the way? The three years have passed had brought a few changes to the quiet family. The war is over, and Mr. Marsh safely at home, busy with his books in a small parish, which found in him a minister by nature as by grace. A quiet, studious man, rich in the wisdom that is better than learning, the charity which calls all mankind brother, the piety that blossoms into character, making it august and lovely. These attributes, in spite of the poverty and the strict integrity which shut him out from the more worldly success, attracted him to many admirable persons as naturally as sweet herbs draw bees. Um, and so we get this introduction. Then she goes on and talks about the girls, and she makes the point that from the outside perspective, this looks, seems to be a female-dominated house, which of course is how separate spheres, fight philosophy, ideology, wants. Right? The, they say that women's domain is the home and the women should control, especially Catherine Peacher thought this, that women should dominate the home. If we're going to have separate spheres, then that sphere has to be women's 100% and really dominated by them. So we get this nice overview of, of how you know, things have passed. You know, you've kind of kind of imagine in a movie the five years later come and they gotta get an update on what everyone's doing. But three years have passed. Not five, three. Now Meg is twenty at this point. Joe would be nineteen, Beth eighteen, and Amy fifteen or so. Um so at least the three older ones are are eighteen. They're they're actually are legally women and well on their way to to adulthood amy too is pretty close and she's a very different girl than she was early earlier in the novel a lot has happened of course the war has ended brooke went to war during this period so after this engagement actually brooke went off to fight and he got wounded and came back joe has become a paid writer for the newspaper so she stops caring for aunt marsh and stops reading to her and amy takes over that job uh, of caring for her and the seeds for this were planted in the previous novel because during Beth's sickness, Amy went and lived with Aunt Marsh for a while and, and, you know, just got used to that environment. And so she takes over this job of caring for and reading for Aunt Marsh. Laurie has gone off to college and he's come back with a broader network of friends, which liberated him from some of the more restrained life. He enjoyed living with Mr. Lawrence, which is what he wanted. So that tension between the generations gets resolved simply by him growing up. And I, you know, that might be a theme here, right? That there's always these tensions between adulthood and, and teenagers. And I don't know if we want to say this novel has adolescence. Um, that's a whole historical debate about when adolescence begins in different cultures, you know, and, and what it really entails. And there's been some really interesting books on this. I'm thinking um, Brumberg's book on girls, an intimate history of girls. I, I forget the, the full title of it. That's a really good window into the changing expectations of adolescence at various points in American history. But anyways, um, that's resolved just by him going off to college, right? Which is what Mr. Lawrence wanted all along. So it's just patience succeeded for him. The most important thing on the horizon, though, is the preparation for Meg's future home. And this is something the entire family helps with in various ways, and they all contribute to setting up uh, Meg's future home, Mrs. Brooks' future home, if you will. So chapter two, the first wedding. So we get a wedding. Uh, we've been working on this for about 80 pages in the novel. So it's finally the resolution of all this uh, set up earlier on. And there's not much to it. It's a very small wedding. Meg goes around and she assures the family that despite her marriage, she will remain part of the family, which of course is resolving Joe's big hostility towards, towards the wedding. But again, growing up helps with this because Joe by this point has her own 
job and her own artistic pursuits. And this lets her not feel as bad about Meg leaving. So it's when she was more of a girl that Joe really didn't want to let go of any of her, her family. But as she grows up and becomes a writer and starts making money on her own, she starts to realize, you know, that she's going to lose family members. Anyway, so that's that's a nice resolution to all those tensions that have been building up in the previous previous chapter. Um, and this follows with chapters about each of the girls. Except I think Beth. I think we just we just get uh, Meg, Joe, and Amy. In fact, we get Amy first. So we get in kind of reverse order of their age. Chapter three is called Artistic Attempts. So as I said, this is a series of chapters checking in with each of the girls as they begin to move into their adult professions. Amy learns to be a painter. Joe learns to be a writer. And Meg, a mother and homemaker. And I guess we could add to this, Beth increasingly becomes content with, or at least comes to terms with the fact that she's not going to have a full life. Amy struggles in a way much more than Joe does with her art. She's trying to continue her training in art, but she's not a savant, and she really has to work hard on that. And and Joe does too, but I think Joe has a little bit more innate talent as a writer than Amy does as, a, as an artist. And then Amy's combining this and struggling with her growing social life because she's very beautiful, and she's the blonde of the family, and she catches a lot of eyes, and she gets a lot of friends. And this tension between her growing social network, and she's a very kind of a social gadfly kind of character, with her art is is a tension that never is fully resolved during the novel now but i think alcott is making a point with all these girls that their their gifts are not a result of magic or talent but rather really hard work and a big part of each of their development is labor so quote from fire to oil was the natural transition for burnt fingers and amy fell to painting with undiminished ardor an artist friend fitted for her with his cast-off palettes, brushes, and colors, and she daubed away, producing pastoral and marine views such as had never been seen on land or sea. Her monstrosities in the way of the cattle would have taken prizes at an agricultural fair, and the perilous pitching of her vessels would have produced seasickness in the most nautical observer, if the utter disregard to all known rules of shipbuilding and rigging had not convulsed him with laughter in the first place. Swarthy boys and dark-eyed Madonnas staring at you from one corner of the studio did not suggest Murio. Oily brown shadows of faces with a lurid streak in the wrong places meant Rembrandt, buxom ladies and dropsical infants Rubens, and Turner appeared in tempests of blue, blue thunder, orange lightning, brown rain, and purple clouds, with tomato-colored splash in the middle, which might have been the sun or a boyer, a sailor's shirt, or a king's robe, as the spectator pleased. End quote. So we get here the difficulties Amy's facing, and she's got a lot of influences, and she's trying a lot of different things, but you know she's not really well trained yet and not fully successful but it's going to take work and the same thing happens to joe actually with her her writing so amy in this chapter tries to have a party but finds it difficult to manage the cost of the party the weather and all her friends in the end she's very disappointed with how the effects turn out and this seems to be a metaphor for art as well that good things take risks but they also take hard work and are not always successful failure is going to be a big part of life and amy's facing failure both in her art and in her social life, both of her major concerns. Chapter four, literary lessons. So this is about Joe's writing. Now, Joe's been writing columns for $1 a piece, but has yet to really make it big. So uh, under the encouragement of a friend or an acquaintance or someone, she's maybe, was it? I don't think it was Lori, but 
someone says you should do this. She submits a story. She writes, she writes it in a red blaze, really, but she submits it to a newspaper and she ends up winning $100. But rather than taking the money for herself, she gives it to her mother to see to Beth feeling health and she encourages them to take a trip. Joe works on her other stories and eventually she gets her novel published. Although she's forced to accept restrictions by the publisher and she accepts this. So she's also learning like Amy's learning and she's willing to take advice. But poverty and success and authenticity are all in conflict in this chapter, right? Uh, like good writing doesn't always make you money right away, right? Success takes hard work and sometimes it means you have to maybe not be as strictly an authentic writer as you maybe want to do. Sometimes it means you have to make changes or edit things down. And so they're all in conflict here. And she also has to learn to deal with criticism if she wants to be a public figure. So she gets her novel published and it doesn't get the best reviews, right? And she feels bad about that, obviously. It's her first novel. But, you know, Mrs. Marsh talks to her about this and says that this is part of just being a public figure and part of growing up and part of, you know, being who she wants to be. Then we get chapter five, domestic experiences. I'm not quite sure the time on, on all these, but it, it, it's a significant amount of time in, in these chapters that are that are covered, especially in this one. So this chapter is about the struggles Meg faces in her marriage to Mr. Brooke. Now, Brooke is saving a lot. And, and this even in Little Men, you're reminded of just how much Brooke saves for his family. In fact, he, he dies in Little Men at the end. And it's kind of implied he saves so much that Meg never has to work again or never has to worry about anything. So he's saving a lot of money for the future. And he's very lives very frugally. But Meg seems to want a bit more out of life in constant saving. And she, at one point, kind of in a splurge, overspends on some fabric that she wants to use to make some really nice clothes or to tend to send to a tailor, I think, to get made into good clothes. And as many minutes she buys it, she feels really bad about this. And she knows she kind of blew the family budget. Now, they don't really fight over this. Mr. Brooke kind of is just, oh, do you like it? Do you, is that what you wanted? Then I support that. What they do fight over is the fact that Brooke brings over a lot of friends and Meg sort of wants Brooke all to herself and Brooke wants to maintain connections, you know, in society. And they fight over that. And what Meg learns here is that she must compromise in order to make the marriage successful, which is also what Amy learns. She has to be successful or she has to be compromising and take lessons if she wants to become a good writer and Joe has, or a good artist. And Joe has to take the suggestions of, critics into concern if she wants to become a great author. So Meg learns if she wants to be a great mother and wife, she has to compromise as well. So she seeks out advice from her mother, and that's sort of what her mother tells her, that you got to put Mr. Brooke in your mind. You can't always just think about yourself, and, and you basically have to compromise. And I guess that's the standard relationship advice for, for anyone. Now, but Joey criticizes this view. Do women need to suppress elements of their individuality in order to make their marriage work? Is it you know, it's there's not really the suggestion here that Brooke has to compromise. Brooke's presented as a pretty good and understanding guy, though. So maybe he already learns this lesson and we don't really see it addressed in the forefront. But it's not really brought up that maybe Brooke's the one who has to change it. No, it's it's Meg who has to maybe change her ways and be a less greedy and maybe not want to buy the fine silks or, you know, maybe give Brooke a little time to himself. And is a marriage working the most valuable thing at the end? How much should be sacrificed to make a marriage work? And, and I think that's maybe not something Alcott gave much thought to. I mean, yeah, she chose not to marry, but, you know, divorces weren't as common as they were now. And I actually think that's it's a good, it's, it's a sign of progress. 
people say like the 50% marriage divorce rate we have now is a sign that marriage is falling apart or whatever. But, you know, we got to look at it in a way as a good thing because that means that people have that freedom to get out of relationships. And because women have increasingly, you know, job opportunities and legal rights, they can get out of marriages that aren't working for them and are making them unhappy. And so we should celebrate the end of marriages the way we celebrate marriages, perhaps, as, as the opening. We always say marriage is the opening of a new happiness, but, you know, we never celebrate divorces this way. Um, and maybe we should. In any case, though, they work through their trouble and Meg gives birth to twins. So John Lawrence, one of those kids, the boy, He's named after his father. So instead of calling him John Jr., they call him Demi John or just Demi. So he's going to go by the name Demi uh, for the rest of these novels. The girl is named Margaret, but this is Marmee or Mrs. Marsh's name. So she goes by the name Daisy, not to confuse her with her grandmother. So these two characters will play a major role in the second volume of the Little Women trilogy, Little Men, and then show up again in Joe's Boys. So these are kind of planting the seeds literally planting the seeds of future characters that that he's just going to have a lot to say about um so that gets us through the next 100 pages so we've crossed into the second part you know halfway through little women um so what's any new themes in the novel well yeah i think the big theme that's introduced the old themes are still there about loss but it's, it's sort of dealt with. Loss is, I guess, less acute here because the family's been restored and the characters have come to terms with whatever losses they face, most specifically the loss of Meg to marriage. And they've come to terms with that largely by pursuing their own interests and, and desires and kind of moving into the world as, as adult women. Especially that's the case with Joe. Now, we do have here the major theme, I think, that's been introduced is compromise and adaptation and creativity and being successful requires this sort of flexibility. That, you know, that there's not such a thing as a successful total authenticity. I mean, you can be authentic, but it doesn't mean you're going to be successful. If you want to be successful, you're going to have to change and adapt and learn. So it's a process of learning, and it's not something that ends with adulthood. I guess that would be the theme that's really introduced in this part of the story. Um, so we're halfway through, over halfway through Little Women. We're going to have two more episodes on Little Women before moving on to, to Little Men. And we'll see what, I think in the next part, we really see what happens to Joe and Amy. They become the focus of, of the second part of the novel. And Beth and Meg kind of fall to the backdrop a little bit. But it's really going to be mostly about Joe and Amy and, and their adventures into, into womanhood and creativity. Uh, and I think that's partially... At where Alcott wants her focus to be on the creative, the creative too. So uh, that does it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Um, if you do have any comments, you can write me at hundredpagescast at gmail.com or you can just leave a comment here, or you can find me on Twitter, Evan Lampy one at Twitter. Um, but you know, I, I'm thankful that you're listening and I appreciate your thoughts. Um, I'll see you next time, and we'll can keep continuing on through um, the second half of Little Women. But a golden cord is severed, and our hopes in ruin lie. We shall meet, but we shall miss him. There will be. 
one vacant chair we shall live